This is hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Seriously, prove us wrong by emailing me at chuck at because the pressure is just killing me. With the Supreme Court overturning New York's law against the carrying of guns for self-defense, the court has yet again reinterpreted the Second Amendment in a way that veers from what the amendment was truly intended to do, and that is enshrine the right of the United States to marshal a militia, but only in times of war. The late Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger called such a reinterpretation by the court a fraud. Meanwhile, when it comes to elections and what they really reveal about what is actually happening here in the United States, the media and politicians exaggerate their significance. As our upcoming guest argues, Americans in general know little about politics and care less, which is just the way the people running things like it. And if all of that is not enough to make you realize why we call our show This Is Hell, there's the Democratic Party's refusal to go big when it comes to addressing many of the shortcomings of the United States and embrace the policies that are often the most popular with not only Democrats, but disenchanted Democrats, independents, and even those who would likely swear they would never, ever vote for a Democrat, no matter who is running for office. It's like the party is purposely shooting itself in the foot And for the past 30-plus years, they've been an exceptionally good shot. We'll be discussing all of that in a few when we welcome to the show writer John Schwartz, whose most recent articles at The Intercept include Right-Wing Supreme Court Continues Its Great Fraud About the Second Amendment. Despite what pundits claim, most elections don't tell us much of anything about America. And history says democracy will die if Democrats don't try going big. Before joining First Look Media, John worked for Michael Moore's Dog Eat Dog Films and was a research producer for Michael Moore's movie, Capitalism, A Love Story. John has contributed to many publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones, and Slate, as well as NPR, and Saturday Night Live. In 2003, he collected on a $1,000 bet that Iraq would have no weapons of mass destruction. John is also a member of the Writers Guild of America. You can follow John on Twitter, at Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, tonight is the last unofficial This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet that is really a drink and think, taking place downstairs at the bar downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. So what is the likelihood that you will be joining us this evening? And what do you think the likelihood is that I will actually be showing up and not be paranoid about catching COVID right before a surgery? Uh, I guess maybe like a... 75% likelihood I'll be there. I invited my friend, so, you know, as long as things continue as planned, I'll be there. Oh, look at that. As for the percentage of the chance of you being there, I don't know. I feel like they're not going to be there. That's just my intuition. <sighs> I hate your intuition, and it's really driving me crazy. Uh, I, I've been kind of really freaking out about this because I really just don't want to catch COVID before I have a surgery that I desperately need, so... I don't know. So if you are, we could, we could just like go a really hard masking campaign. I don't <sighs> know. Uh, 
do I want to do that even? So if you are listening to the Saturday morning world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment, do not get too excited as the final unofficial office hours has in your world already happened. However, This Is Hell office hours will officially return, if all goes well, on Wednesday. August 24th, following my upcoming surgery, recovery, and what will be a much-needed vacation, following nearly uh, three weeks of hospitalization, four months of surgeries, and assorted medical procedures, all of which have so far been, so far have just been disgusting and incredibly taxing on me, both physically and mentally, which is why I desperately need my upcoming annual family vacation at the lake. More important than any of that, Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell, I have not pulled it, but I do remember it. It is, what are you contributing to the battle against inflation? Wow, you memorized it. I did. I, I don't know. Well, I've never done this two days in a row before. Uh, so that's why, producing so, two days in a row. Yeah, I don't come prepared, I guess. <laughs> but if you have me here two days in a row, I might be more So prepared. let's see if you can do it again. So what is the question from hell again? What? Are you contributing to the battle against inflation? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century, a flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support, and we need your support now more than ever, because it turns out paying our staff a living wage is admirable, but not so great for your bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email thisishellradio at gmail.com only during the next hour for you to still qualify for this week's question from hell but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment jeff exposes a ufo conspiracy previously kept hidden for sensitive reasons and i think that every word in that tease is sarcastic by the way, in neighborhood news, last night when I walked uh, the one block over here from my home to uh, so I could print out today's show notes, I, I went past a small group of people sitting on the benches at the corner, and one of the people was kind of uh, serving court, if you will. Uh, he was busy telling his associates, let's call them associates, that he is a quote-unquote gangster because he will rob you. But he stressed that he will first give you something before he takes something from you. It's the kind of reinterpretation of the Robin Hood story that really 
says a lot about 21st century America and Devon Avenue for that matter. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with John Schwartz on the Supreme Court's Second Amendment fraud, what elections truly show us about the good old U.S. of A. and why the Democratic Party should, but likely will not, go big in addressing our societal shortcomings. Again, the question from hell is, what are you contributing to the battle against inflation? What are you contributing to the battle against inflation? Coming up, fraud, exaggeration, and a lack of courage in U.S. politics. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth. And we'll tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell. This is not the media. This is hell. The Supreme Court repeatedly commits fraud when it comes to rulings on the Second Amendment. The media exaggerates what elections reveal about the United States, and the Democrats, for whatever reason, refuse to go big when addressing the needs and demands of their own constituency. I know it's a lot, but here to help us get through all of it is John Schwartz, a writer at The Intercept, and he is on today to discuss his recent writings, including right-wing Supreme Court continues its great fraud about the Second Amendment, John, uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Schwartz. That's S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. Welcome to This Is Hell, John. Hey, well, I'm so happy to be here. I am a longtime listener and appreciator of this show. Wow, thank you. Now we have six listeners. We're really excited about it. We're all the way up to six full listeners. No, I'm sure we have more than that. You write that 24 hours before the Supreme Court eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion, it significantly expanded gun rights with its uh, ruling in uh, a decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. In the ruling, the same six conservative justices who struck down Roe v. Wade voided in a 111-year-old old New York law that required applicants for a, a concealed carry permit to demonstrate that they had a special specific need for self-defense. Now, this is this in turn will require other states with significant gun regulations, as you point out, states like California, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Hawaii to change their laws. Uh, other uh, restrictions on guns will likely fall uh, fall to law, fail to loss fall to lawsuits. Sorry, President Joe Biden then released a milk toast statement. That's what I want to get to. I'm deeply disappointed by the Supreme Court's ruling. Second Amendment is not absolutely salute. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul said, I'm sorry this dark day has come, that we're supposed to go back to what in what was in place since 1788 when the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified. And I would like to point out to the Supreme Court justices that the only weapons at the time were muskets. So many who supported the Supreme Court ruling uh, last week were very upset with President Biden's statement, arguing that the Second Amendment is Absolute. That's what a lot of supporters of uh, no limits to gun guns uh, were saying. That they were really upset about him saying that this is not an absolute law. Why do you see that statement by the president as milk toast, a statement that is feeble, insipid, or bland? And uh, why do you think it upset so many people that he didn't see it as absolute? Yeah. Well, the. A straightforward answer is that America is one of the most propagandized places on earth. And that works in two ways. Like, first of all, the reason why people think that, that there's somehow an unlimited right to 
armaments granted by the Second Amendment. That's because they've been propagandized by the gun lobby. And the reason uh, Biden's statement was milk, milk toast was because the propaganda has been so effective that Democratic politicians, both him and the New York state governor and a lot of other ones too, like are, are absolutely unwilling to tell the truth about this issue. And the truth is uh, something that Warren Berger said, I quoted him in this article, uh, people may remember or may also not remember, but he used to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was chief justice from 1969 until 1986. And he was a Republican and he was appointed by Richard Nixon. So like those credentials do not scream ultra liberal. And he was not ultra liberal. He was extremely conservative to a kind of weird and awful degree on some issues. But anyway, the point is he used to be chief justice. And after he retired, uh, this was on the, the bicentennial, bicentennial, bicentennial of the Bill of Rights. Uh, so that's uh, 1791 to 1991. In 1991, uh, Berger said like the second amendment has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And so what he was talking about is the fact that the Second Amendment is not about individual gun rights. It's about the collective right really of uh, state militias against the federal government. And that's the point of the Second Amendment you don't need to know a whole lot about U.S. history, just a little bit about U.S. history to understand this. It's it's really pretty straightforward. And that has been, you know, kind of revamped in the last like 30 or 40 years into it having to do with individual rights and everybody, you know, having the right to any weapons they want. Now, having said that, you know, the history, we can get into it, is that it's not necessarily that like the founding fathers would have wanted the government to have the right to regulate you know, personal armaments. Uh, it's just they just didn't think about it. That, that wasn't part of the consideration when they were writing the Second Amendment. Uh, so you can find various quotes from founding fathers, you know, talking about the importance of being armed and so forth. But that wasn't the issue when they were writing the Second Amendment. And you know, the Second Amend Amendment, as you were just saying, it starts with the phrase, a well-regulated militia. By the Supreme Court argument, individual mass murders had the right to carry the guns they used in their killings because, uh, you know, anybody can carry those guns. So uh, yet a, a militia, is a, it's a military force that is raised from the civil population to supplement a regular army in an emergency. So within that definition, how could anybody reinterpret that definition to mean uh, an, an individual? How can an individual be a well-regulated uh, militia? How did those two things become equated? Well, uh, just because, as I say, Americans are really propagandized. We're probably the most propagandized country on earth, except maybe North Korea. Like, it's incredible the number of things that, uh, where, you know, propaganda has driven Americans kind of out of their minds. I mean, everybody who is listening to this who's old enough will remember just before the invasion of Iraq that everyone in America believed that Iraq was overflowing with these terrifying uh, banned weapons, weapons of mass destruction, which is also a term of propaganda. And uh, I, I looked at the polls uh, back then and also more recently, and li literally only 1% of the people in the United States believe that Iraq did not have anything. And so a mere 1% of Americans actually understood the truth. And it's not because like we're all dumb, it's just because 
we are the world leaders in creating effective propaganda. And that is the case on this issue. It's very, it's, you know, some of the propaganda is really stupid. It's like, you know, if you go to the NRA headquarters uh, on the wall there in the lobby, I've, I've never been there, but people say that, you know, they have emblazoned on the wall, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so they've just cut out the first part of the Second Amendment. <laughs> so, so that's dumb propaganda. But they also have more complicated propaganda for uh, people who love to really get into the nitty gritty and the weeds. And so, you know, you can read uh, like the Supreme Court's decisions on gun issues uh, more recently. And, you know, they, they have all of these, you know, citations and these thickets of footnotes and so forth. And uh, unless you're paying really close attention, you don't you don't realize that this is kind of nonsensical. But uh, anyway, uh, that's that's the story. I'm, I'm sure you and the people listening to the show are familiar with the fact that Americans are not always, like their beliefs are not always on the money. There was a front page uh, story of the New York Times within the last week uh, stating that the marketing from gun makers has gone from hunting to you know uh, ensuring your right to be able to hunt to personal defense. How much do you think the marketing by gun makers may have had an impact on this decision, even though the Supreme Court is supposed to be, the decisions are only supposed to be based on legal legalisms. Uh, do you think that it might have had an impact simply through marketing and the percolating up from the masses and what their desires are? Supreme Court decisions always have something to do with like the general like political mood in the country at, at any time. Uh, but you know, in this case, I'm, I want to hand it to the uh, the justices who made this decision. I think they are total ideologues, and uh, it doesn't matter to them like what's what is on TV. You know, they were going to make this decision regardless. It, but you point out that understanding uh, these uh, the concepts of this not being uh, the Second Amendment not being not being interpreted correctly, you write that it requires some knowledge of U.S. history, but not that much. In your opinion, are the Supreme Court justices who ruled to overturn New York's gun laws lacking knowledge of U.S. history, or are they just ignoring that knowledge of U.S. history? I, I think they're mostly ignoring it. You know, it's always hard to tell. It's like like with all issues like this. Uh, you have the basic question, like, are they dumb or are they lying? And uh, I think these are pretty smart people. I think they're mostly lying. You also point out that James Madison uh, pointed to the success of the American Revolution itself as proof of the effectiveness of militias against a regular army. To you, uh, does that explain any confusion over the Second Amendment that individuals were given the right to bear arms as a militia, but only if they are collectively part of a well-regulated and government-conducted militia, a fighting force similar to the one that repelled the uh, British military. Do you think that's where the confusion is? That sure, you can be armed, but you have to be armed as part of a militia, and we kind of ignored the fact that that collective action is what it was supposed to be focused on, not the individual action. Yeah, well, so to understand this and why Madison said that, it is useful to talk about a, a little bit of American history. And like, you, you don't have to be a, a scholar of the American Revolution to understand this stuff. And a lot of it really is just like, like basic things that you would hope people would learn in, I don't know, high school civics or whatever class you would take about this. Uh, and it is pretty, pretty interesting, but it, as I say, it's also pretty straightforward. So, you know, uh, America had won the revolution 
uh, pretty much by 1781, although I, I think it didn't officially end until the treaty in 1783. Uh, but in any case, Amer the American states, the 13 original colonies, were, were then sort of bound together by the Articles of Confederation. And it quickly became clear that the Articles of Confederation really were not enough to run a country, that, that they did not create any kind of uh, significant executive power. It was a lot like having 13 separate little countries. And there were a lot of people uh, in the United States at that time who were fine with that, but there were also a lot of people who believed, uh, you know, in retrospect correctly, that that simply wasn't a plausible way to run things. And so uh, a bunch of people, but first and foremost, James Madison, uh, who is from Virginia, uh, decided that they needed to create a new governing structure. And there, people may know this turned into the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. So one of the most significant events in, in early US history, of course. And uh, they wrote the Constitution and uh, there was then a lot of debate about like, like, is this going to be ratified? Because it wasn't like we write the Constitution and then all of a sudden, like it's the law of the land. It had to be ratified by the states. And this was very much up in the air. And this is the kind of thing that people may remember from boring high school history classes. Like there are the Federalists and there were the Anti-Federalists. And the Anti-Federalists were the people who did not want the states to ratify the Constitution. And they were the ones who were most concerned about centralized power in the United States. And one of the main issues that they were worried about was a standing army. And that's like a weird phrase that no one really understands today because it's such a dead issue. Uh, like a standing army is just like the US army is a standing army. It's just an army that exists uh, indefinitely. Uh, and that was not the norm at the time. And there was a lot of concern that like, standing armies were always used by governments to uh, not fight or defend the country, uh, but to oppress the people in the country. And there's a famous anti-federalist article where it says standing armies are dangerous to the liberties of the people. The truth of this position might be confirmed by the history of almost every nation in the world. And so when the anti-federalists were saying like, let's, let's, let's not ratify the constitution because it's going to create a standing army, uh, the federalists had to have some kind of answer. And the answer that Madison gave, this is in uh, Federalist number 46, uh, one of the more famous of the Federalist papers, was that you don't have to worry about the standing army because states will still have their militias. And that's why he brought up the American Revolution because you know obviously they just won a war uh, largely with the help of France. People may know that the British actually surrendered to France rather than the United States formally because so much of the help came from France. But it was a very popular thing to say that it was these militias the, you know, just the regular rank and file people, state militias, other militias had fought and won the Revolutionary War. And so he was making the case, like, you don't have to worry about the centralized government official because uh, centralized government power, because we just beat that with our militias. So that's why he brought it up. And the thing that he said in the Federalist Paper uh, number 46 was the state governments or the people on their side would be able to repel the danger, citizens with arms in their hands, 
officered by men chosen from among themselves, fighting for their common liberties and united and conducted by government possessing their affections and confidence. It may well be doubted whether a militia thus circumstanced could ever be conquered by such a proportion of regular troops. He was talking about you know, the number of troops that they would have to be fighting against. And so uh, the point they were saying was very straightforward. Like, we need these state militias. Like, you're worried about the central government, the standing army. It's all cool. Go ahead and ratify the Constitution because uh, we're going to have these militias to defend regular people from the oppression of the central government if that ever becomes an issue. And when they were uh, writing the Second Amendment, because part of, part of the political maneuvering at the time in terms of the ratification was that uh, the Federalists were like, well, okay, what if we add a Bill of Rights? to this constitution. Like, will you, will you ratify the constitution then? Like on the promise that eventually we're gonna add this bill of rights. And, and that's what really made it happen. Like the constitution may never have been ratified without the promise of the bill of rights. So then the bill of rights had to be written and the second amendment and the bill of rights generally uh, was, was largely not completely, but largely derived from the uh, Virginia declaration of rights, which was written in 1776 at the time of the beginning of the American revolution. And the Virginia Declaration of Rights used a lot of language which will sound familiar. It's, it's not exactly the same, but the, the Virginia Declaration of Rights said that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. That standing armies in times of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty. And so then we got the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So it's pretty clear, you know, if you just listen to that language, they're almost the same thing, uh, but it's clearer in the Virginia Declaration of Rights about what they're talking about. So anyway, that's, that's the little bit of history that you need to know. Uh, there's more history about how the Second Amendment was interpreted uh, until very, very recently, it was never interpreted by the Supreme Court as meaning that uh, this was an individual right to bear arms. It was, uh, in fact, rarely addressed by the Supreme Court. But when it was, uh, pretty much it was agreed that you know, this, this was a collective right to bear arms. So uh, what changed? Because you point out in a key 1939 Supreme Court case, United States versus Miller, two men had traveled across state lines with an unregistered shotgun with a shortened barrel in violation of the National Firearms Act of 1934. Laura Court held that part of the act was an unconstitutional violation of the Second Amendment. In refuting this, the court declared that the obvious purpose of the Second Amendment was to assure the continuation and render possible the effectiveness of state militia forces it must be uh, interpreted and applied with that end in view. So, so what changed? How did the courts go from understanding the right to bear arms was for a state militia uh, to have the right to bear arms and not for everyone individually to have the right to bear arms? What changed in the decision-making process? Well, it was decades of effort by the gun lobby, you know, in the same way that it took 50 years for Roe versus Wade to be reversed, uh, this understanding of the Constitution, it, it took pretty much the same 50 years, <laughs> the same period, uh, for this understanding of the Second Amendment to be reversed. And it just goes to show, I mean, there are uh, forces in the right, you, you kind of have to hand it to them, like they do good work, they're very patient, uh, they have this kind of coordinated, like, like mass propaganda, and then they have the 
law professor propaganda, the judge propaganda, and they work and work and work and work and work. And uh, over time, they've succeeded to an incredible degree. And you can you know, see the degree to which they've succeeded by the way that their new interpretations become just kind of common sense. And that's why you find these democratic politicians like not mentioning this history. They would never quote Warren Berger at this point. You know, that, that would be so far away from what people consider to be common sense. And that's, that's just, as I say, the work of decades. Whether it's Bruin or Dobbs, the rulings on the Second Amendment and the rulings on Roe v. Wade, is the right proving at this time that incrementalism works? You know, you could you could say that. I mean, what really works is having billions and billions of dollars to spend on your like, like political goals. Like that's that's the key thing that they have that uh, other parts of the political spectrum don't have. <laughs> so, uh, incremental incrementalism works if you have those billions of dollars. I think that's a big if, a big qualifier on there. Uh, that's probably more important. So uh, when it comes to uh, arguing, uh, well, could could con- could true constitutional originalists, could they argue that a standing army is unconstitutional if they were truly, not just the people who say that they're constitutional originalists, but if you truly were, could you make an argument that a standing army in the United States is unconstitutional? Well, you know, I think in fairness to everyone concerned that uh, it is clear that a, like an army, the U.S. Army is constitutional. It is there. There is language in the Constitution saying that Congress has the power to raise armies. And I think I would have to uh, I, I hate talking about the Constitution without having looked at it recently. But I, I think the Constitution does uh, still say it certainly said at the beginning that uh, they could only fund the army for like two years at a time, I believe. Uh, that was that was sort of a nod to the idea of standing armies being a bad idea, but the Constitution does give give Congress the right to raise armies, uh, and that you know that was really the issue with the Bill of Rights. They're like, look, the Constitution is going to allow the country to have a standing army, and so that's why we need the Bill of Rights. At the beginning of your article, you mentioned uh, New York Governor Car- uh, Kathy Hochul's uh, quote about. Uh, where she brings up muskets in her statement following the SCOTUS ruling on Bruin on the Second Amendment. Uh, So is the technology of weaponry at the time the Constitution was signed irrelevant, even a distraction from the language within the Second Amendment? Is pointing out that the gun that was most prevalent was a musket a bad argument for those who are supporting gun regulations? And if so, why do those who oppose concealed carry focus on a poor argument, a distraction from the wording of the Second Amendment. Does it make any difference what the technology of weaponry was? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing where uh, the Constitution really shows its age, you know? <laughs> like, uh, it has been around for a long time, and we're coming up to, what, like the 231st anniversary of the Bill of Rights itself. I mean, uh, this is why the people who founded the United States, you know, with all their flaws, which were many, uh, did have the right idea, Jefferson especially, when they talked about how they would expect that the Constitution would be changed a lot, and it would just be changed over time. And Jefferson has that famous quote about something like, you know, there's no more reason to think that the Constitution will fit, you know, the United States down the line than there is to, like, you know, like, like a shirt for a young boy will fit him when he's an adult, something like that. Anyway, uh, you know, the real argument 
that should be made uh, is that the Second Amendment is, is kind of irrelevant to all of these debates because it is about state militias. And so all the other subsequent questions don't really matter. But the question about the technology is one that demonstrates that, that no one actually believes that the Second Amendment grants people the right to, to carry arms of the kind of technology that we have now. It, like no one actually believes that individuals have the right to like little nuclear weapons, you know what I mean? Uh, no one believes that individuals have the right to like even slightly smaller armaments like you know personal tanks. So no one truly believes that there is no limit on what arms individuals can carry. So that's that's a sort of like gotcha question, you know, what she's talking about. And you know, it's kind of useful if you're debating this with someone. But you know, it's like it's like with abortion. Do people who uh, believe that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided and should have been struck down, like like do they believe that uh, you know states should be able to like execute women who have abortions because you know abortion is murder? Like do states have the power to do that? Uh, if you're going to be intellectually consistent, then you should say yes. You know that's that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, and if you're going to be intellectually consistent about the Second Amendment and you think that uh, you know, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, then you believe everybody should have their own nuclear weapon if they want one. And again, nobody actually believes that. We are speaking with Intercept writer John Schwartz. You also had an article uh, that is titled, Despite What Pundits Claim, Most Elections Don't Tell Us Much of Anything About America. And you write that when Chesa Bowden, the uh, district attorney of San Francisco, was recalled on June 7th, a volcano of takes erupted about what this meant. New York Magazine declared that it signified the debacle of urban left-wing politics. Yahoo News said Bowden was uh, resoundly recalled for failing to get a grip on crime and uh, disorder, and this was sure to reverberate nationwide. California sends Democrats and the nation a message on crime, explained the New York Times, as progressives, quote, were knocked on the defensive in their own party over crime and homelessness by Bowden's, quote-unquote, landslide recall, yet any cursory review of San Francisco's record on crime since Bowdoin took office in January 2020, that shows that, yeah, sure, property crime has gone up. It's gone up across the United States since the pandemic started. But violent crime and homicides, those have declined. To you, what explains the repeated media narrative that Bowdoin's left-wing politics, as described in the press, had caused a huge uptick in crime in San Francisco when that clearly wasn't the case when it comes to violent crime. Yes, well, here I think we have to go back to those billions of dollars available for propaganda. Uh, I mean, it is, it's amazing on pretty much every issue in the United States. Uh, the standard common sense position generally has nothing to do with reality. And uh, it, that's always a good starting point. Like, like whatever you hear as the common sense uh, a normal moderate position on the news like is almost certainly untrue and it's generally like like 180 degrees away from reality like that was the case with weapons of mass destruction in Iraq uh, and, and it goes up and down uh, you know up and down society like America is just a society that like loves fraud in all kinds of ways like we love financial fraud uh, uh, what was the company Theranos am I remembering that correctly where 
uh, like George Schultz was on the board of Theranos and like the entire company was completely fraudulent. So anyway, America is a country that loves fraud. We're great at fraud. And that's what explains this with San Francisco. So but we're such huge is a question I've been asking since the very beginning of our show. We're such huge consumers of media to you. What explains why we're so bad at consuming media? What explains why we're so bad at noticing that something is misinformation or disinformation when we consume so much media? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I think this is just a guess on my part. I mean, I think it is that America has like the most powerful business corporate culture in the world, like the greatest and most extensive that's ever been developed. And if you want to understand communication in America, like you should don't look at the news, but like look at the commercials. And the commercials have nothing to do with reality. And they're like, you know, like all these products will do all of these things for you, supposedly, uh, that they never could in a million years. Like the commercials have nothing to do with reality. And so all the techniques that were developed to sell products uh, have then been adapted to sell politics. And uh, they work. They work in both instances, both for the products and for the politics. And uh, I don't think anybody can can honestly say like like they can even like watch a Burger King commercial and, and say like, that doesn't make me hungry. Like they, <laughs> they really know what they're doing. You know, even though like the food that they're showing you, you know, like is actually made of plastic. Like literally like, <laughs> like when they're doing Burger King ads or whatever, you know, this is not actual food because they need to do a hundred takes. Uh, so you're looking at this non-food, you're like, mm, sounds good. Like that really, I'd love to have some of that delicious plastic hamburger. I love the uh, urban myth that I heard right when I moved to Chicago, that at Wendy's, the stuff that makes the Frosty is the exact same stuff that makes the burgers, the buns, the uh, French fries, that it's all just put into molds. And it just depends on what you get out at the other end. I thought that was one of the greatest urban myths I've ever heard. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I think that actually, uh, I could be wrong, but I think that actually should be credited to like an old Steve Martin joke. Like he had an old joke that was about that, about McDonald's, where he would say like, you know, I, my theory is that it's all the same stuff. It's like, like, here's a hamburger, like, here's your shake. Uh, here's your change. <laughs> <laughs> so you write, uh, then there was a, a take counter offensive when it came to the recall of Chesa Bowden. Uh, you write that many progressives noted that California Attorney General Rob Bonta trounced everyone else in the state's jungle primary despite attacks on him for being a, a squishy, soft on crime lib. Activists pointed to the upset victory of Yesenia Sanchez in the race for sheriff of Alameda County across the bay from San Francisco as a sign that, quote unquote, criminal justice reform is alive in the Bay Area. Next door in Contra Costa County, progressive district attorney Diana Becton cruised to reelection despite strenuous efforts from law enforcement groups to defeat her. And But as you point out, the New York Times headline was California sends Democrats in the nation a message on crime. How misleading was that headline? How vulnerable are Democrats? I guess this is the bigger question. How vulnerable are Democrats this fall during the midterms when it comes to the issue of crime, especially those who would want to see criminal justice reform? Do you think those Democrats are vulnerable this fall? Well, you know, this is really a local issue. It's one of the most local issues there is. And I think uh, some are and some aren't. And you know, we've seen, like, as you just mentioned, people who had very progressive policies on, on criminal justice uh, were winning. And 
the truth about how like the best propaganda is true, right? So it is true that in San Francisco, you know, the district attorney, he, he was recalled. Uh, but as I say, the best part, like that is true. Like that's great to use for propaganda. But what you leave out is the other part that you mentioned, you know, about the people with progressive policies who won. But the most important thing, the reason that I, I wrote this article is that it's just true across the board that US elections are generally low turnout. Like by international standards, even presidential elections are very low turnout. But especially these kinds of like small scale, non-presidential local elections or state level elections, primaries, so few people turn out to vote that it doesn't tell you anything. Like it doesn't tell you anything uh, about you know how everybody hates criminal justice reform. And it also doesn't tell you anything about how everybody loves criminal justice reform. It just doesn't tell you anything. And so progressives can win, uh, but that is not necessarily like a sign that America is, is now in love with progressive politics and uh, progressives can lose. And that doesn't mean that, that America now hates progressive politics. It just doesn't tell you anything. And like, like in San Francisco, I think the recall one with, uh, you know, maybe 25% of the eligible voters voting for the recall, uh, you know, who cares? But then that's also true for the progressive legislators who, who won. Uh, so, you know, like, like, what is there to say about this? Nothing really, uh, unless you want to use these things for propaganda. But why isn't the story for the media that one in four eligible voters or less actually voted? Why that the voter turnout was so low? Why isn't the story voter turnout was incredibly low? Why would the media not want to report that as the story and instead point towards an exaggerated significance of these voter turn or voter uh, uh, conclusions? Well, I think your your question answers itself. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, the U.S. media is. Right wing, for the most part, at the very best, it's sort of like corporate centrists. And so they have a story they want to tell and they tell it. And as I say in this article that I wrote, like if they're being honest, the headline for like basically every election would be Americans still depoliticized and disengaged from what the US media class spends its life yammering about. So I, I think that that's part of it too. It's, it's that the individuals uh, within the US media system you know, they've devoted their life to covering these issues and they don't want to have to report the same thing every time, which is that uh, Americans are not listening to them and don't care. And, you know, of course, that's like both, but that's a judgment about their lives. It's also a judgment about their work. Like if Americans don't care about what U.S. Uh, political reporters are writing about, you know, what does that say about the work that they're producing? Uh, but also it's just a judgment on them deciding like, spending my life on politics is, is worthwhile. And like, nobody wants that, you know, I, I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want to hear that Americans aren't paying any attention to what, what I'm talking about. And you probably don't want to hear that either. Like who wants to know that? You point out that when Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez defeated Joe Crowley in the 2018 Democratic primary in New York's 14th congressional district in a shock upset and then took office, it was proclaimed as, quote, very likely a harbinger of a new American political reality. But only 12 percent of registered Democrats showed up to vote in the primary, you point out, meaning that Ocasio-Cortez won it with under 7% of eligible voters. Then in the higher turnout general election, she won with the support of about 29% of eligible borders, uh, uh, voters. So whether it is progressive victories or progressive losses, 
Why is their significance exaggerated by the corporate mainstream establishment media? Why do they particularly, when it comes to progressive victories or losses, exaggerate that significance of those victories or losses? Yeah, I mean, the, the other aspect of it, which is certainly worth mentioning, is that, you know, the corporate media is a business. And part of, you know, producing the stuff that you're going to run in between commercials is that you want it to be exciting for people to keep watching and, you know, see the next commercial for Burger King and then stay and watch the next segment and then see the uh, commercial for McDonald's and, you know, everything else. So they need to keep people watching. And it's very difficult to keep people watching. It's like, well, this doesn't really tell us anything. It doesn't really mean anything. So uh, that's probably going to happen in the next election too. So that's the story. Stay tuned. Like that just doesn't work. And so the media is always, is always going to be biased towards like telling some, you know, exciting, stunning story, whether or not that has anything to do with the planet we live on. So do you think that sensationalism, does that contribute to voter ignorance? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Uh, you know, the, the most important stories that happen to people are things that that what really truly matters to people's lives is stories that are slow moving with a ton of momentum that don't have any kind of like exciting news hook like you know like speaking of Roe versus Wade I mean maybe we should be paying attention to the incredibly high rates of child mortality in the United States like it, it, it's stunning and it's it's horrifying and but like, like, where is the conflict? Where is the excitement in, you know, babies dying soon after they're born? You know, like, has has this noticeably like changed in the last two weeks? Like, no, it hasn't. So, like, what's the news? Like, this is the olds. Like, <laughs> that's an old story. Uh, and so, as I say, what truly affects most people's lives are, is, is stuff like that, or you know, political issues that have been. Uh, you know, fought over for decades. And so it's just very hard. It's very hard uh, to get the news to cover the stuff that truly matters. The media narrative is usually after this kind of voter low voter turnout, if they even do mention it, they will say that it is all driven by voter apathy, as if it is the voters' fault for the reasons that people didn't go vote, that it is their fault and their fault alone. Is this driven by apathy, by a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern? And if so, what do you think is the driving force behind that apathy? Do voters simply not care, or is it something else? Well, I mean, I I, I do think it actually is apathy in a sense. It's just that it's the kind of apathy that happens when you've been beaten on for so long that you come to a perhaps mistaken, but nonetheless understandable uh, attitude that, that nothing you do in terms of voting is, is going to make a difference. And you should understand, like, if you're in that position, like, the unfortunate reality is that the U.S. political system is designed so that it's going to be very, very hard for you to make a difference. Like, speaking of James Madison, uh, people may have heard there's a famous quote of his about you know, the, the rationale behind the different parts of the U.S. government. Yeah, so we have the three branches. And then within the legislative branch, we have the, the House and the Senate. And he said that the role of the Senate would be to protect the minority of the opulent from the majority. So in other words, the, the whole point of the Senate is to protect rich people 
1% from the other 99%. And, uh, you know, you got to hand it to Madison. It's like, you know, we're going on 250 years and it's still working. Uh, but that was the point of the Senate and uh, it still does a great job at that. So anyway, the point is just that for regular people, uh, they, they see what's right in front of them. They don't see any kind of political organization that would give them a voice. Uh, they don't even see any political organization that like tells them when the elections are. Like it's all up to you in America to figure this stuff out for yourself. And so like are people apathetic in a sense? You're like, yeah. Uh, if they thought that they could get some kind of real change by voting, then people would vote. But I think it is absolutely the case that people like don't vote because they just don't understand like like how that translates into anything in their lives. You write of President Ronald Reagan's 1984 re-election victory with receiving only 31% of the eligible, eligible vote. This was deemed a gigantic landslide and a wholesale repudiation of progressive politics by Americans. Donald Trump won in 2016 as the choice of 26% of eligible voters, which was likewise seen as a tectonic shift in the views of U.S. citizens. In 2020, Joe Biden won as the choice of 34% of eligible voters. And you point out that a majority you know, of Americans, they didn't vote for Reagan or Bush Sr. or Clinton or Bush Jr. or Trump or Obama or Biden or any president for a very long time. Why don't critics of the, United, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court point out that none of the justices were appointed by a president who won the majority of eligible voters' votes, that none of them were appointed by presidents who won a majority of eligible voters' votes. Because one of the arguments that's going on right now with the Supreme Court critics is that, well, the ones that voted for or voted to overturn Roe v. Wade or those who voted to overturn the New York State uh, gun law, those people were appointed by um, presidents who who did not win even uh, more votes than their opponent. Their opponents actually won more votes. But why not point out that none of the Supreme Court justices were appointed by a majority of voters when it comes to eligible voters? Yeah, well, I, uh, I agree with you. <laughs> I think that that is well worth talking about, you know, about the Supreme Court and about the government in general. And ask the question, like, why does the political system have so little uh, validity and meaning to regular people in the United States that we see this over and over and over again? Now, I think it is also worth, like, what you're talking about, about the Supreme Court. I do think it is worth noting for sure, and I myself have noted it, <laughs> that if you look at the, the six people who voted to overturn Roe versus Wade, only one of them, Clarence Thomas, was appointed by a president who initially won the majority of the, excuse me, uh, actually I should say the plurality of the popular vote. So the Clarence Thomas was appointed by George H.W. Bush, Bush number one, and Bush did win the popular vote as well as the electoral college in 1988. Uh, but then George W. Bush lost the popular vote in 2000. And uh, he did get to appoint two Supreme Court justices after winning uh, and actually winning the popular vote in 2004, but he never would have run in 2004, right? If, if he'd lost in 2000, like you don't get to run twice in the American political system. And then of course, Trump appointed three and, uh, and lost the popular vote in 2016. 
I'm uh, I, I have high hopes that that Donald Trump, uh, you know, if he runs in 2024, will lose the popular vote again, which would be a kind of amazing achievement to like lose the popular vote three times. There, there are very few presidential candidates who ever managed to do that. But so anyway, I agree with you. I, I do think it's worth noting like that fact about, you know, these are just electoral college winners, but popular vote losers appointing all these Supreme Court justices. Uh, but it's just, it's a, it's a larger overall problem. Like the US political system does not work as far as regular Americans are concerned. And you write that we're doomed to an endless morass of articles about what elections tell us about America's heart when they generally don't tell us anything. So next week, we celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day, when pundits of all stripes will tell us this is the greatest country ever conceived and the greatest democracy in the history of the world, a beacon of democracy for every other nation on earth. Is making such claims and then not recognizing how low voter turnout is how and how little eligible voters actually care to participate in democracy is is that hypocritical are 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 Americans hypocrites for celebrating independence day for believing that this is the greatest democracy in the world and then not voting uh you know i i mean i don't know some americans are hypocrites in that way but i think for the most part I, the, the, all the celebration about America being the greatest democracy on earth and stuff like that. Um, I think that's, you know, that's also part of the propaganda. And I think it's a propaganda that bounces off most normal Americans and most Americans don't think in those terms. So like, like I don't get together with my friends, I, my friends and my family, like don't get together <laughs> and talk about that. Not, not because like America like has some good aspects to America for sure, but it's like, that's a weird thing to do. Uh, it's a weird thing for people in any country to get together and talk about how like this is a great like, we're the best country ever like that's just strange like people don't do that and so that's also part of the propaganda as, as far as I can tell. A couple weeks ago you also posted an article headline history says democracy will die if Democrats don't try going big Robert Kuttner warns Biden's presidency may be the heartbreaking uh, interregnum between two bouts of deepening American fascism. Uh, Bob Kuttner is an economist uh, from American Prospect, and uh, he has been on our show in the past. Uh, you write that, uh, looked at from a distance of nearly a century, the reason the U.S. evaded fascism seems clear. It wasn't that we're nicer or better than other countries, thanks to our inherent sterling character. We just got lucky. The prolate spheroid-shaped football of history bounced the right way for the country, and a huge part of the, that luck was uh, FDR and the New Deal. Roosevelt was exactly the right president at the right time. The New Deal demonstrated that democracy could deliver unmistakable benefits, both material and emotional, to desperate people and thereby drained away much of the psychological poisons that powers fascism. Has the far right, even those embracing fascism, has that grown during the 21st century in the U.S. because our current democracy is not delivering those benefits? And if so, does the neoliberal concept of small government lead to more and more people being attracted to fashion, fascism? Does not going big lead to more people attracted to fascism? Uh, the answer to your question, I believe, is yes. <laughs> In fact, I think there's no question that how you summarized it is correct, is that neoliberalism is a kind of policy that inevitably leads to a right-wing reaction. Like if you teach people that democracy uh, doesn't work, that you can't get your hands on the levers of power to get you what you and your family need for just a 
basic decent decent existence, then people will be like, well, who cares about democracy? Like that's not the way I would like people to think, but it is understandable for sure. And that is what happened in the 1930s. It happened you know, across Europe where the, the purportedly democratic governments, which were not very democratic, but purportedly democratic governments were unable to deal with the, the economic catastrophe. And people uh, understandably, again, not endorsing it, but understandably like turned to fascism in a lot of countries. And it happened to some degree here for sure. Like I've written about uh, people mostly don't know. There's like a mass American Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden in New York in 1939. And there was an attempt to overthrow FDR uh, during the Great Depression. It's again, dropped out of history because it's an inconvenient story, but it was called the business plot that people should look up if they're curious about that. So there was an attempted uh, you know, stab at fascism here. And we were just lucky that we had the right circumstances and uh, you know, the right president, somebody who really relished uh, you know, giving it to, you know, he really loved betraying his class. <laughs> He got a real kick out of it. Uh, so we were lucky to have him. We were lucky to have all the political organizers at the time. And But it, it could have gone differently and it could go differently again. And people should not, uh, I mean, just, just look at the hearings this week. I mean, it's it's extremely alarming what the, the US right believes about what their prerogatives are. So uh, we better get ready because the future is looking pretty dicey. You also point out that in Robert Kuttner's new book, Going Big, he points out, or you, you point out that he was born in 1943, but he writes, uh, Kuttner writes, I'm a child of the New Deal. My parents bought their first home with a government-insured mortgage. When my father was stricken with cancer, the VA paid for excellent medical care. After he died, my mother was able to keep our house thanks to my dad's veterans benefits and her widow's pension from Social Security. I mean, sure, all that sounds great, but but we gave up all those big government policies by voting for elected representatives who promised tax cuts that shrank all of those programs from which the public was benefiting from. To you, what explains why those who were voting for lower taxes did not recognize the outcome would be more expensive health care, education, far more precarious and unstable life, especially after retirement? Why didn't they know? Why did they recognize I'm voting for lower taxes and this means I'm going to get less benefits. Right. Well, you know, as we've been discussing, I think you just need to go look at those commercials for Burger King. And uh, who can blame everyone, for, you know, looking at the equivalent of Burger King commercials and being like, hmm, sounds good. <laughs> you know, if you only think about it for 10 seconds and uh, you're encouraged to never think about it for more than 10 seconds and you have like the world's best commercial makers selling this product over decades, like that's what you get. You get the United States right now. And so, you know, teaching people, uh, you, you know, sort of what the actual facts are, people learning from each other what the facts are, uh, like that's that's a very slow process. And uh, we're just a country where everyone has been conditioned to get all of their information in, in little tiny increments, and that's that's not how it works. If you want to know about how the world actually is. 
But when it comes to the New Deal, its critics will often point out that it was uh, administered in a very unequal way and even in a racist way, in a way that people who are ethnic or racial minorities, people of color, did not benefit from the New Deal as much as everyone else did. It wasn't uh, kind of an egalitarian New Deal. Yet you point out that uh, Robert Kuttner shows that the, that was the only way that FDR was going to get it passed, was that he had to placate uh, you know, unpalatable Southerners, as he calls them. So it was the only way the U.S. could get a, a New Deal back in the 1930s that it was racist in order to mollify mo- mo- uh, Southern Democrats? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think that we should acknowledge the New Deal, what, like lots of aspects of it were written in ways, like there's no question that they were written so that African-Americans would not get the benefits. Like that, that's 100% true. Now, people pointing that out and criticizing it are of two genres. Like one is the sincere critics who genuinely think that these programs are good, but that everybody should have access to them. And uh, then there are the people who hate these programs and want to destroy them. And so they, they have this sort of like bad faith argument about it. Look how racist these policies were. And the truth is social security was set up like that, but uh, it has been changed since then. So it is, uh, it is, it's not racist anymore. And so I don't know what the answer is. Like <laughs> America was a super duper racist country in the 1930s. And uh, it still is, but not to the same degree. And I think what we should focus on is, is you know, getting, getting good programs, but like not making that mistake again. I mean, it wasn't a mistake, it was definitely on purpose. But, uh, you know, uh, that history is true and, and we should accept it and learn from it. You also point out that FDR would have relished the fight about uh, fighting over going big, and he would would have relished the fight and going big, but uh, Biden and the Democrats now seem intent on going small, so small and petite and inoffensive that no one notices or gets mad at them. Is the power of corporations of their money too big to fail, too big to be challenged? Is the Democratic Party not going big, if you will, because doing so would challenge the corporate power and financing supposedly needed by the Democratic Party to win elections. Is this just as a sign of too much corporate power that cannot be challenged? Well, yes to the first part. Second, No to the second, I would say. Uh, you know, is it a sign of too much corporate power? Absolutely. 100%. The timidity of the Democrats can, can be mostly explained by that. Uh, can it not be challenged? I think it can be challenged. And I think that uh, I think that we have like the technology, just like like the fact that somebody like Bernie Sanders could run a nationwide campaign and get tons of campaign contributions, uh, you know, via technology that did not exist in the past. Like that's a big advantage for weirdos and oddballs such as ourselves right now. Uh, but also people are so incredibly dissatisfied and unhappy about the political system, that the the uh, corporate power has has really lost its grip, and you can see that in the in the uh, Republican Party right now. Like I would have said that the corporate power that ran the Republican Party could not be challenged, but in fact it could be. And the the you know, right wing businesses, centrist businesses that fund the Republican Party, they did not want Roe versus Wade overturned. Like not not because of some sort of <laughs> you know, commitment to uh, American 
American bodily autonomy. Like they don't care about that, but uh, it's just a big, it's a big hassle for them. You know, it's going to be a disaster for American businesses. Like, what do you do? What do you do if you have a pregnant employee and you want to send them to some kind of meeting in a state where abortion is outlawed? And then like they begin to miscarry while they're at this meeting. I mean, that's a disaster for businesses. They don't want to run the world like that. But their corporate power was challenged by the grassroots of the Republican Party. And uh, they, they won. Like, you can like it or not like it. I don't like it. But they did win. Like, they did do this. So uh, as I say, that's the problem right now for the Democrats. But it doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean they can't be beaten. It just means uh, it's going to be a lot of work. We have been speaking with John Schwartz, a writer at The Intercept. You can follow John on Twitter, at Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. One last question for you, John, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And before I even ask you this question, thank you so much for having such wonderful taste in radio shows. I really, really appreciate it, John. So is democracy in the United States under threat, as so many analysts and pundits claim, because... The citizens of the United States prove time and time again when it's time to vote that they do not care much for democracy. Is voter apathy, as it is called, the reason why democracy is under threat and is so precarious in the United States? Well, okay. so first of all, let me say, uh, you know, uh, I, I do have good taste. In radio programs, but uh, I can I can I can only utilize that good taste when there are good shows like this to listen to, uh, and so I really do I really do appreciate this show, and I, I encourage everybody listening uh, who you know can to send you guys some bucks. Like it really <laughs> it really does matter uh, to support this kind of radio. Um, you know that's just a it's a super complicated question. The answer is also super complicated. And the real answer is, you know, nobody knows. Uh, like history is strange and mysterious and it bounces, as I said, like, like it bounces like a football. Uh, it can take a lot of bad bounces and it certainly has here and all over the world. Uh, but it can take some good bounces too. And you, you just don't know what is going to happen. And that's why you just gotta you just gotta try, and have faith that you're gonna get a few good bounces and see what happens. And uh, that's not that's not a real like to the barricade like a rah rah <laughs> message. But you know this this is absolutely a matter of life and death. So uh, it's worth doing everything you can. I think the irregularity and the randomness of a football bouncing in whatever direction is a far better analogy than a pendulum swinging back and forth in a very regular way. I think it's a very much a random situation with lucky bounces every so often and not something that can just be metered and metriced and uh, determined just simply through a pendulum. So I, I completely agree with you, John. John, thank you so much for being on our show today. I love your writing at The Intercept. Truly appreciate you being on, and thank you for the kind words of support. Well, I, it was great to be here, and uh, I look forward to tuning into your next show. All right. Take care. 
putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. If what you just heard from John Schwartz on the Supreme Court fraud, what elections do but mostly do not say about the good old U.S. of A. and why Democrats refuse to go big when it comes to addressing the demands even of their own constituency, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something in order to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support of completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Just give us a few more answers and then we'll give the rest later on. This week's question from hell is what is your con- contribution to the battle against inflation? That's on Twitter. Um, I think it's worded a bit differently on Facebook. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I it think is. So what too. are you contributing to the battle against inflation? Uh, I'm going to Facebook first. Uh, I left off on Neil C's free Nickelback CDs yes, yesterday. Yes, Neil. Thank you again, Neil, for all the support that you've showed. This is hell in the last week. I truly appreciate it, that as well. Free uh, Nickelback CDs. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, the next one I think is really funny from Kim G. What are you contributing to the battle against inflation? Kim G says... All the lentils I bought in March of 2020. <laughs> I think that's a good one, too. Kim G always gives great responses, so thank you, Kim. Kim G! <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Look, Lisa <laughs> that was B. wonderful. <laughs> Lisa B. says, uh, my deflated expectations of humanity. All right. I think we're all there a bit. Yeah, all yeah. right. Um, and Scott P., says good vibes that's <laughs> what they're contributing to the battle against inflation you know i was actually thinking about the bar thing tonight yeah if we want to do a heavy masking campaign everybody just has to show up in an n95 mask that says good vibes on the front <laughs> that'd be nice yeah. that'd be a nice <laughs> message instead of the masks that we have that say this is hell on yeah them. <laughs> yeah yeah you need a little something more optimistic yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's a good idea okay uh espazi F says a low wage that doesn't drive prices up. Who knew? I don't know. I don't I don't, know if that I don't works. understand yeah. economics. Yeah. Don't ask me. Yeah. Okay, the last one on Facebook and then we can do the rest wait later. Till later. Yeah. Kelly H says eating down leftovers from the bag of the freezer. <laughs> that's that's, that's a, brave. That's <laughs> that is very brave. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us just for a little bit more at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, Jeff is coming into the interview booth as we speak, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber uh, to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams every week in his podcast shortly after at the same place every Thursday. Sometimes it's on Friday mornings at 10 a.m. Patreon.com slash thisishell. On this week's Patreon podcast, on Thursday's Patreon podcast, 
Well, to be honest, I'm not certain what I will be talking about during my monologue because all I can think of about is my upcoming surgery that will hopefully, if I survive, be my last surgery. In this nightmare I've been going through these past four months, and I don't want to make that the topic of my monologue yet again because even writing about it is a nightmare. Also on Patreon, we will be sharing another classic interview we unearthed from our archives that is currently unavailable online, and that interview will be the final interview of our series of purposely un-American and unpatriotic interviews that have been featured in the past here on This Is Hell. This week's uh, is, and we're doing this all because it's, you know, July 4th. We want to celebrate too, but in our own opposite way as This Is Hell. This week's interview is an interview we conducted just prior to the 4th of July, 2008, 14 years ago, a conversation about someone who was seen by both Republicans and Democrats for whatever reason. Both Democrats and Republicans see them as a truly patriotic American. So we'll be sharing our discussion with Elliot Cohen, who had just posted the Truth Dig piece, John McCain's Chilling Project for America. At the time, Elliot was the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Applied Philosophy and ethics editor for Free Inquiry magazine, as well as a professor of philosophy and chair of the Department of Humanities at Indian River Community College in Fort Pierce, Florida. He's the author or editor of many books in journalism, professional ethics, and philosophical counseling, including his 2007 book, The Last Days of Democracy, How Big Media and Power-Hungry Government Are Turning America into a Dictatorship. Hey, look, he was right. Elliot was the first prize recipient of the 2007 Project Censored Award for his investigative reporting on the corporate takeover of the Internet. Who knew that happened? If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get instant access to over two hundred past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. But you can only hear all that by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. Let's hear Jeffy's intro. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. Super truth. Fat gay UFOs. Are there any real mysteries left? Clearly, we're not the doe-eyed, innocent public we once were, back when Howdy Doody and Alka Seltzer ruled the popular zeitgeist. It's not enough for things to be true anymore. Now, they must pass a more rigorous test. The test of believability in the laboratory of public opinion. And yet somehow, there still remain unsolved phenomena to boggle the jaded mind, shake us out of our trances, and remind us never to trust our senses, our reason, our memory, or the evidence. We live in a truly miraculous time when anything can be true, but only the best thing 
can be super true. Every economic system that has ever existed has had people defending it as the only system consistent with human nature and insisting that every effort to go beyond it is doomed to fail because it contradicts human nature. Economist Richard Wolff. Where did they come from that day? Those colorful, obese, amorphous, transparent objects that appeared in the sky above Old Country Buffet in the outskirts of Billings, Montana. Why had they come? Was it merely to blast everybody dance now as rainbow lasers streamed out of them in every direction like unicorn projectile vomit? Within less than a minute, after several vocally anti-LGBTQI closeted Republican congressmen had spontaneously orgasmed, gushing in tormented ecstasy until their balls were empty, shriveled husks, and they died. The fat, gay UFOs, as they were dubbed by the media, zoomed off along multiple vectors at startling speed leaving no trace that they had ever been there. All that remained was empty blue sky and questions. That's the way it is with fat, gay UFOs. One moment they're there in Montana, squirting rainbows, blasting disco as they wiggle and jiggle in midair like blobs of anti-gravity gelatin while they hover inscrutable, and the next moment they've disappeared, leaving no clue as to the reason for their confounding yet joyous visit. Or at least that's the way it was the one time we know they visited. The dead congressmen they left in their wake were remembered as hypocrites who, according to some interpretations, got what they deserved. The governor of Texas, in response to the incident, and in supposed solidarity with the slender heterosexual people of his state, ordered a statewide ban on rainbow sherbet. The instant that ban went into effect, rainbow sherbet became the most popular flavor in Texas. People made their own in the bathtub. They smuggled it in from other states. They bought black market rainbow sherbet from China that was found to contain asbestos and dryer lint. During the ban, over a million Texas residents died from non-FDA-approved toxic sherbet. But they died happy, knowing they'd given their lives for a taste of polychromatic childhood joy. Even children who couldn't yet be nostalgic for childhood joy, nevertheless died happy knowing they'd given their lives for a taste of childhood joy. In what became a legendary ritual, the poisoned ones, smiling sweet smiles, died with profane curses for the governor on their lips. The governor eventually died in an illustration of poetic justice of anal warthog Ebola. 
a Navy pilot out of San Diego named Prester Thorax, call sign Belly Button, was logging his 33rd flight hour in the experimental aircraft X-88 at the same moment as the fat, gay UFOs appeared over the Old Country Buffet in Montana, he spotted a bogey on his radar. The bogey was moving at unbelievable speed and headed directly toward Thorax. This is Belly Button, he said over his radio, clocking a bogey moving at unbelievable speed. Are you seeing this? We see your bogey, the tower responded. Christ, what the hell is that thing? And how can it possibly be moving so fast? Belly button, it's headed straight for you. <laughs> Advise. <laughs> this really happened. <clears throat> Advise evasive maneuvers. But it was too late for evasive or any other classification of maneuvers. The gelatinous blob spewing rainbows, blasting disco, was no sooner spotted, remarked upon, and in direct contact with the X-88, then Belly Button's aircraft, <laughs> pardon me, had passed completely through the object, unharmed and seemingly unaffected, except that at the exact moment of penetration, Belly Button instantly became gay and a bit wistful for the mid-70s club scene. Lieutenant Prester Belly Button Thorax was wedded to his favorite wingman and radar intercept officer, LTJG Oscar Gossage, callsign Ostrich, in an outdoor New Age ceremony on the dance deck of the late Anna Halpern's Mountain Home Studio in Kentville, California, a mere two months after the mysterious incident. One year later, the couple were awarded matching medals of valor for courage and strategy above and beyond the obvious in homoerotic beach volleyball. As a matter of course, there have been a series of inquiries into the appearance of the fat, gay UFOs. Witnesses have come forward to testify to citing these phenomena at the same date and time as the Montana visitation and the belly button conversion from as far afield as Marfa, Texas, Vernon, Florida, and Arkham, Massachusetts. The only conclusion experts have been able to draw is that every man, woman, and gender-fluid member of the U.S. Navy is in some way queer or gay. Whether or not this is a result of some influence emanating from the FGUs, or fat, gay UFOs, or if it has simply always been thus, no clear determination has been made. Did the fat, gay UFOs catalyze, release, or even introduce some kind of joyful hormones in those humans who came under their extraterrestrial sway? Did they merely unlock 
a kind of love that lay trapped and latent in the impressionable whose lives they touched? Or is everyone apt to love whomever, regardless of classification, at the drop of a hat? And maybe we should stop examining human affection as if it were a chemical process subservient to cause and effect. That third choice seems kind of lazy. And yet why should laziness have a negative connotation? Why should leaving well enough alone even indicate laziness? Can't you just enjoy stuff? What's wrong with you? Give your irritable, scrutinizing arrest, will ya? Stop picking at everything. The only thing certain is that the fat, gay, UFOs did visit Earth and did leave exactly the positive repercussions one might expect of a gelatinous, rainbow-spurting, musical macroglobule. Did they come from outer space? Were they experiments that escaped from a Hawaiian laboratory? Were they mass hallucinations? Did they ever exist at all, except here, in this sensationalistic slice of infotainment. The conclusion is obvious and yet irrelevant to the context. The fat, gay UFOs were entirely good and brought nothing but positive sensations and beautiful solutions to human stress. Belly Button and Ostrich opened a bed and breakfast hidden in the Costa Rican jungle, where to this day they entertain everyone and everything that stumbles upon their establishment. Is any of what you have just heard true? The question is moot. The story of the fat, gay UFOs and the beneficial influence they've had on humanity doesn't need to be true. They have come to our attention because they are super true. This has been the Moment of Truth, your one and only source for super truth. Good day! Did you know that uh, Rod Serling, the reason he got the Twilight Zone show, I assume that was trying to be a Rod Serling. Yeah, it was... That's pretty good. Fumblingly so, yeah. Uh, uh, the reason that he got Twilight Zone is he had pitched a TV movie to the networks, and it that, uh, was a movie about the uh, killing of Emmett Till. Oh. And they loved it. They thought it was great, but they were like, it's the 50s, dude. We're not showing a movie about Emmett Till on TV. So we'll give you the Twilight Zone. And then he decided that he was just you know, do the same kind of thing, have these uh, socially aware uh, TV plots, but just hid within science fiction and horror stories. So that's how he got Twilight Zone. Did you know that my dad's uh, partner in his business, Dorchin Serlin Architects, which okay. is no longer Dorchin Serlin Architects, the guy bought him out of the business in the oh, 70s. Good for your dad. But Dorchin Serlin was related to Rod Serling. No, oh, crazy. As was the guy, the character Mr. Carlin, the guy who played the character Mr. Carlin in uh, Bob the Bob Newhart. Newhart Show. No kidding. I had no idea. Yes, it's all mishpucha here, man. <laughs> this is what you miss. 
by not being Jewish. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and give us the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from Hell is, what is your contribution to the battle against inflation? Uh, I guess I'll start with the ones you sent me from sure. email. Yeah, I think they're Twitter or mm-hmm. email. I can't remember where I found them. This one's from Corn Pop underscore truther, <laughs> apparently. It's very wholesome. It's very good. It's to fight inflation, I'm gifting my meals for my friends and neighbors made from vegetables from my kitchen garden. Yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, it's not very hellish. Yeah, not at all. And it's kind uh, of the opposite. Uh, on the other hand, the name Corn Pop Truther is very, uh, that's very hellish. <laughs> that's true. Well, yes, that sounds like a food not bombs to me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, let's see. The next one in the email they they think that this response m- might rightly get us canceled today, but that he this person uh, who is Tom M lived through them in the 70s and claims that they were different times. <laughs> if okay. that makes sense. Okay, their answer is burning incense at my Gerald Ford whip inflation now altar. <laughs> is how they're contributing to the battle against inflation. I don't know how that's going to get us canceled. I mean, it's he sent a picture of the button which says "Win Whip Inflation Now," and it's a picture of Uncle Sam with a whip, whipping a man wearing a scarf that says "Inflation." So I think it's just the the whipping is I a see. little traumatic. Yeah, but, I um, yeah, it could be. Yeah, that's that's our email answers. That's a good one. Burning yeah. incense at the altar of the whip, in, whip inflation whip now. <laughs> and uh, any, any more on Twitter? Yes, we have three. Okay. So. Uh, at Megathrustquake says, what is your contribution to the battle against inflation? They are feeling deflated. Okay. So it sounds like they're losing. Right. Uh, At EatFart69 is quitting work. Oh, that's that's always good. good. That's a good one. And last but not least, at Hypocrite Reader says, their contribution to the battle against inflation is getting my tramp stamp of the Phillips curve laser removed. I had to look this up. The Me Phillips curve is, curve is an economic concept developed by A.W. Phillips saying that inflation and unemployment have a stable and inverse relationship and Damn it, Hypocrite Reader, you made me do some research for the question from hell. Uh, The ones I like the most, I did like Hypocrite Readers. That was a good one. I also like uh, Espazi F's, a low wage that doesn't drive up prices. Scott P saying good vibes. Lisa B saying my deflated expectations of humanity. Uh, Kim G, all the lentils I bought in March 2020. That is fantastic. Mark A S saying if we all pull together and don't even get up in the morning, let alone buy anything, prices will go down. Jesse N saying thoughts and prayers. Egon S saying not selling my labor time because no one will buy it. Fabio saying opinions on Facebook. George saying a labor theory of value, that is the value of a commodity, could be objectively measured by the average number of labor hours required to produce uh, the commodity. It's a Marx thing. Uh, that makes this week's winner. I really did like this one. And I know, don't know if anybody, everybody else will. But my favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, what are you contributing to the battle against inflation? 
I like Jesse N's thoughts and prayers because it just seems kind of a pointless thing to do, but it's always the reaction that we get for everything. Congratulations, Jesse N. Uh, just tell us what piece of This Is How Swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get it to you in the mail post haste. Wow, did we go over today? I am, uh, what I'm doing, uh, what I'm contributing to the are contributing to the uh, battle against inflation. I'm refusing to purchase weed at its current current uh, sky high prices at corporate run dispensaries here in Chicago. And instead, when I finally do get an up to date state ID, I will be purchasing my weed at corporate run dispensaries in Michigan, where prices are much lower. So, how does that fight against inflation? Well, nationally it does not, but locally, okay, it probably doesn't fight inflation locally either, but at least I'm not personally going to be paying for inflated prices for weed. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsay Gorey, Sebastian, and Sebastian Vupper, and always thanks to Alexander Jerry for all of his behind-the-scenes work. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Get well wishes to producer Dan Hill and his family as they are recovering from COVID-19. And Dan, we look forward to uh, you being back here in studio at your earliest convenience. Now, this is usually when I will would ask the producer of today's show who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. However, I will not be doing that today because... I know we have yet to schedule any guests for next week, which is what I will be doing as soon as I get back to my home office before a telehealth appointment I have with a dietitian. And we'll be announcing next week's uh, confirmed guests on tomorrow's Thursday's Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. We uh, will have another installment of Seb Soapbox, producer Sebastian Vupper's discussion on history. Another This Week in Rotten History, of course, another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. But next week, Jeff will be delivering that moment from somewhere in northern Michigan. Ah, so I guess that's that's it for today. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. Patreon.com slash this is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>